I'm wondering if any of your conversations yesterday, either while you were watching the NBA All-Star event, or whether you were with your sweetheart enjoying some chocolate and good food, whatever you were doing, if, if the subject came up of God's judgment, No? Well, you're in luck this morning. <laughs> we get to talk about God's impartial judgment. And we're doing that because we're going through Romans and we're here. And, and Paul's expending as much time as he does in any of his letters in the New Testament, preparing our hearts for why do we need the gospel. In, in Romans 1.16, he said that the gospel is God's power for salvation to all who believe. To all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And then he continues to expand upon why is that such a desperate need. And so where we were last week in one chapter one, verses twenty-eight to thirty-two, we uh Paul said that because people rejected God, because they didn't think he was worth keeping in their minds, worth giving thought to, he gave them over to an unfit mind, a, a depraved mind, to do things that ought not to be done as judgment. And um, he listed 21 examples of, of the ways that we do things that ought not to be done. And from everything from murder to gossip to inventing evil, disobedience to parents, uh, being loveless, merciless, um, a whole lot of bad things, envy, greed. So he listed all those things and says people have just been given over to these things because of their rejection of God. And he concluded by saying that even though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, meaning they deserve God's final judgment, even though that's true, they not only do these things, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, in the time that Paul was writing, the idolatry, he talked a lot about people falling into idolatry because they reject what they know of God and they worship created things rather than the creator and don't give him glory, and they don't give thanks to him. And so they turn to idols. Inevitably, we do that. We sang about that just a little bit ago, let our hearts not be given to idols. That's where they're going to go if we don't worship God. And so, um, But in terms of idols, as we think about it, worshiping statues of animals and, and people and things like that, um, that's not typically most of our problems. I don't think we have other issues. But in that day, uh, that was a big issue for the Gentiles. And so, um, not the Jews. So the Jews who heard Paul's teaching so far would have been saying, right on, Paul, you are so right on. Those idolatrous, immoral Gentiles sure do deserve God's judgment, don't they? And to that, Paul says what he says in chapter 2. We'll read the first 11 verses, and we might go on to 16 later. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, 
You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. I'm going to pray. Father, help us to hear your word. Help me to speak your word. Uh, we don't enjoy this subject. So help us to find the truth that we need to know what you save us from and how much we need Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. So in verse 1, instead of affirming the, the Jewish person, and Paul's not anti-Jew. Paul is a Jew himself, and so he's, he's talking a lot from his own experience. Instead of affirming the Jewish person who is glad to judge the corrupt Gentiles, Paul says, you have no excuse, O man, that is every one of you who judges. Why does he say that? Well, not just because they judge, but because they judge people for the very same things they're doing. Paul's words apply to professing Christians today. So keep this in mind whenever I talk about, Paul talks about the Jewish religious people. He's speaking to us in terms of our Christian religious culture. What do we call people who know God's standards of right and wrong? We even judge others for doing it, but do it themselves. I heard it. Hypocrites. Probably the favorite reason to many for not attending a church. Haven't you noticed that? I mean, one out of two people you talk to, this is just anecdotal. They don't attend the church because it's full of hypocrites. And of course, the answer to that is, yes, there's always room for one more, right? (laughs) We are hypocrites anonymous. We come together to help one another out of our hypocrisy by the grace of God. In verse 2, Paul continues by saying what the religious person would have to agree with. He says, we know that God's judgment rightly falls on, literally is according to truth. God's judgment is according to truth against those who practice such things. The Jew of Paul's day would be saying, yeah, those Gentile sinners will be judged by God, and I'm so glad that we Jews are God's chosen people and have special protection from God's judgment. In verse 3, he answers that. Do you suppose, O man, man, do you really think that you will escape God's judgment if you clearly know what God's standards are because you judge others for doing them, but you do the same things? Then in verse 4, he says, Or do you presume on the, the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, repentance is simply turning from sin and self to God and obedience. And um, so 
we typically don't associate God's kindness with repentance, but here we have it in the scripture that God's kindness to us is meant to lead us to repentance. It's the kindest thing he can do for us is to give us time to repent. That's what Paul's saying here. Are you despising the riches of God's kindness, his forbearance, his tolerance in withholding judgment and patience, not recognizing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You have mistaken his forbearance for indulgence. In fact, every day that God gives us, every day that he gives to you and me, every day he gives to us, that he doesn't take us away in judgment is a kind call to repentance. I am so grateful that God didn't take me down in my rebellion, in my teenage years and up to age 23, because I, I was not in a state of repentance and it would not have gone well for me. God was very kind. Many Jews in, in Paul's day I presume that because they were God's people by covenant that they were granted immunity from God's judgment. But, you know, when, when criminals avoid being sentenced for a crime and continue to offend, they are presuming upon the kindness and forbearance of the justice system. Perhaps you have presumed upon the kindness of, of a, an authority like your wife not thinking you're going to get in trouble, and you go ahead and do it anyway. But the Jews felt that way, that they, were, they, they would recognize that they had sins, but they thought, but we're God's people, so we're, we're safe, right? That's why when John the baptizer, John the Baptist, came on the scene, he preached that people should repent. And Jesus started his mission with that same message. But Paul goes on and says in verse 5, if you go on trusting in your religious privilege and not repenting of your sin, you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. For because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you are trusting that you are a Christian, but continue in hard-hearted unrepentance, rather than being saved from God's wrath, you are storing it up for the day of judgment. We, um, we think too lightly of sin. We just don't think sin's a big deal. We're, we're just sure it's just an easy thing to, to just say, well, nobody's perfect, and we just kind of move on. And Paul gives a warning to not think that way. And he's saying this storing up process is because, in verse 6, God will give to each person according to his works. Paul is saying to the Jews, to the religious people, to us Christians, who might trust in their religious privilege to keep them from God's judgment, that God will render, in other words, that God will repay or reward or give to each one according to his works. God will render, he will give to each person according to his works. God will give what is just and fitting according to your works, not your religious label. You know, oh, you got Christian, you, you hung out at church, you're good to go. It's not the standard. In verses 7 and 10, Paul will describe what he means by this positively, and in verses 8 and 9, he will show what he means by this negatively. So verse 7, God will give to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give to them eternal life. So if you're seeking 
Glory, honor, and immortality by patience or persistence, perseverance in doing good, God will give you eternal life. That's what it says. You have a problem with that? You don't? I should think some alarm bells might be going off. Paul really means it. What you might be worried about, if you're awake or if I just woke you up and you just tuned in and you weren't tracking, uh, you might be wondering if Paul is teaching that we are saved by our good works. You could be wondering that. In case one or two of you are, I'll, I'll talk to you. The rest of you are on board. Totally with Paul. Well, for one thing, uh, several ver- paragraphs later, in, in um, for example, in chapter 3, verse 20, Paul will say, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Or in verse 28 of chapter 3, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So he adamantly says we are not counted right in God's sight by works of obedience to God. And then in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Okay, so what's going on? We give Paul the benefit of the doubt that he wouldn't so blatantly contradict himself, teaching that we are saved by good works on one passage, but that we're not saved by our good works in others. So what's he saying? Well, there's two options in this uh, interpreting this, this passage. For one, one option is this could be a hypothetical statement. In other words, persistence in doing good works would deserve eternal life if we could do it. That is the way that it would happen. Um, but no one does good always. Everyone sins. Yes, God's standard is perfection. And so Paul will explicitly say, which we just saw like in chapter 3 and other passages we can go to, that that no one will be saved and justified or saved by works of the law. So uh, he could be just saying this hypothetically, this would be true if you could do it, but nobody can do it, so it's, it's not reality. Second option is God will give eternal life to those who persevere in doing good, but not because they do it perfectly and earn or merit eternal life. Rather, it is because a saved person is always a changed person by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you're not saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. He's a work in your life to change you. And Paul makes this really clear. He talks a lot about it in chapter 8, a happier chapter for us. Um, So, the, the true believer perseveres in doing good, including repenting of his sins. That's a good work. We're not talking about sinlessness. We're talking about in my sin battles, I repent and keep putting my faith and trust in Christ and keep pressing on in perseverance, in obedience and repentance and obedience and, and repentance. So the good works are the evidence of saving faith, which unites us to Christ through whom we receive eternal life. So though the first option is true in principle, that if we were sinless and perfectly obeyed God, we would earn eternal life, but no one except Jesus ever met the standard. So no one receives eternal life on the basis of good works. I don't think this is Paul's point in this passage. 
In fact, Paul's point in context has been to say to the Jew who was trusting in his religious privilege or anybody trusting in their religious privilege to save him from God's judgment that God in some sense renders to each according to his deeds. Paul was content for now just to make the point and he later explains how this happens by grace through faith in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said in in Matthew chapter 7 that you'll know a tree by its fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. Fruit on a tree doesn't make it a fruit tree. Fruit on a tree is evidence it's a fruit tree. So if I've got a maple tree, just hanging oranges on it doesn't make it an orange tree. But if I see oranges, that's a pretty good sign that that's an orange tree. And one more thing that we might be curious about, is it really pleasing to God that we seek for glory, honor, and immortality by doing good? Sounds kind of self, self-seeking, self-promoting. Are we really supposed to seek that? Well, what we are to seek is to glorify God, yes, but also to seek the glory and honor of being perfected in righteousness and holiness. That is the full restoration of being made in God's image, restored to us by being conformed to to being like Christ and of being his immortal sons and daughters. Hey, that's what I'm in it for. I'm not just wanting to be a forgiven sinner who continues to break down in my physically and in my spiritual life. I, I want to be perfected. I want to be perfect. Don't you? If you've arrived, just you're good, you're fantastic, but most of us have not arrived there yet. It glorifies God for his redeemed people to reflect the excellence of the glory of his Son. So we should want to be honored by God and to live in immortal, incorruptible bodies, to be with God forever. This is what God has promised. How could we not want it? It's the fulfillment of what eternal life is. It's, it's being sin-free, disease-free, brokenness-free, evil-free, death-free. The person who has true saving faith seeks the glory and honor of a perfected righteousness by persevering and doing good, even though he fails and fails often because God has given him the longing for it by the Spirit. And we'll see that in Romans 8, 23, where that says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. How do you know you have the Spirit? Well, you do all kinds of crazy things. Well, what he says here is, we who have received the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So I know that I've got the Holy Spirit in me if I'm groaning, longing for the full redemption, longing for the full adoption of us as God's perfected people. In verse 8, he brings out the negative. For those who are self-seeking, not seeking glory from God or glory to God, but self-seeking, and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. For those who don't seek to glorify God and and glory from God by persevering and doing good, but are self-seeking, don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. And we're either doing one or the other, aren't we? Everyone is either obeying the truth or obeying unrighteousness. He says, to those people will be wrath and fury rather than eternal life. 
I can't fathom the awful terror of being under the wrath of God. I just can't fathom what that will be. Um, by God's grace, I never will experience it. But it's real. And it doesn't have to be. It goes on in verse 9 and says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. So, yes, if you're under the wrath of God, like a terrible storm that you get caught in, um, there will be affliction and distress to every soul who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the Jews had advantages. They also get first in line for God's wrath if they don't repent. I don't know what that looks like, but that's what it says. Just as the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the, to the Gentile. And then in verse 10, he brings it back to the positive. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the, to the Greek. This is the benefit package for everyone who does good. There will be glory, honor, and peace. So he spoke of glory and honor in verse 7. And this time he adds there will be peace. The word peace here is, is not just there will be absence of conflict and calmness in our eternal dwelling with God. There will be absence of conflict and calmness. But it means more that there will be a perfect environment, perfect relationships, perfect health and joy. No traffic jams, no diseases, no crimes, no wars, no mental illness, no anything bad and broken at all. And then he says, for God shows no partiality. In other words, he brings it up to the reason God judges this way is because he's, there's no favoritism with God. The word partiality literally means to regard the face. God doesn't look upon us with favoritism. He looks upon us with grace, but not favoritism. That's Paul's main point. God will judge each person without favoritism. He will render to each person according to his deeds with either eternal life or eternal judgment. Having the label Christian will not be a get-out-of-jail-free card that avoids God's judgment. Being raised in or living in a Christian environment is, is a great privilege. It's, it's so good to, to be under the influence of, of God's people and, and God's Word. But just being in the presence of those things um, doesn't ensure eternal life. unless you have a life of persevering and, and, and well-doing and doing good. The rest of Paul's teaching in Romans makes it clear that good works for which Paul gives eternal life are the fruit of the obedience of faith in Christ. They don't earn eternal life, but they are the evidence of a saving faith connection to Jesus. That's what Paul says, and we've made that clear, hopefully. Well, 12 through 16 flows right on from this, so let's read that text. Because it seems like God is being partial because he is going to judge people according to their works, and yet the Jews have the written law of God, and that tells them what good works God requires. What about the Gentiles? In that day, they didn't have the word of God. So how can God judge them? Verse 12 through 16, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, verse 12, Paul says, All who have sinned without the law will also perish in eternal judgment without the law. The Gentiles were without the written law. Are they going to be judged because they didn't have God's written law? Or on the other hand, all who have sinned under the law, so the Jews, will be judged by the law. So would their possession of the law keep them from perishing in their sins? Well, in verse 13, Paul says, The hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Just hearing God's word, just hearing the law, doesn't justify you. doesn't make you righteous before God. And so just I don't go all scattering because I say this, but um, just listening to my sermons will not give you credit with God. Sorry. Suffering through them earns you no credit. <laughs> Only doers of the law will be justified. Paul's not getting into the fuller explanation of this as we talked about, but he's, again, in, in chapter 3, he says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified, and we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So we know he's not contradicting himself. He's talking about evidence. By the Spirit, we will do God's law, including repenting when, when we fail. We're not, we're not earning God's righteousness. And he explains what he says by this in verses 14 to 16. For when Gentiles by nature do the law, in verse 14, they naturally do the law, God's moral requirements, they are a law to themselves. In other words, they have an inwardly installed sense of God's law, even though they don't have the written law. That's why there's some basic common moral values among different cultures and religions. It's really messed up, but... You know, most cultures have some sense it's wrong to kill a person for no reason. It's wrong to steal. Yes, it's violated a lot, but there's some, some kind of sense of moral commonality among cultures. And in verse 15, he says, The Gentiles show that the work of the law is, is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So when Gentiles who don't have the written word of God do some of the law naturally, they show the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences, their inner judges of right and wrong, bear witness to God's law in their hearts as their conflicting thoughts accuse or, or defend them. And in verse 16, Paul says, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So here's Paul's point. God will not judge the Gentiles based upon them not having God's written written word. He will judge them according to the law written in their hearts. The accusing and defending work of the conscience in the, presence, in the present time of those without God's written word will reach its consummation, its full expression and clarification on the day of judgment when God will judge people's secrets by Jesus Christ. So this answers the question that many of us have wondered from time to time. So what about those people who just don't ever hear 
of God uh, from, from, a person, from a preacher or a missionary or another Christian? Or uh, what if they never see the word of God? How is God going to judge them? And what he says here is that they had the knowledge of God, moral requirements, however buried they are, however deep down they are, under however many layers in their hearts. It's, it's there. They could know it. Paul had already said earlier that people knew God, but they didn't worship him as God. They didn't glorify him as God. They didn't give thanks to him. They turned to idols instead. So we have suppressed the knowledge of God. We suppressed the knowledge of his requirements. And um, so people are still accountable, even though only the gospel can really save. He says, God's judgment is according to my gospel because the gospel provides the only way a person won't be condemned on that secret revealing day. So Paul is proving to the Jew, to the religious person, that mere hearing of God's word and not doing it doesn't make you right with God and leads to judgment. He has more to say to us in the next passage. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I am counting completely on Christ's righteousness to justify me, not my own. But the Bible does say that I'm going to stand before Christ's judgment seat and give an account. So even though we won't be condemned if we're in Christ, we will still there will be an evaluation. And I just have a closing question for us to consider. What do I know God's word says that I'm not obeying? What in my life do I know God's word says I should do that I'm not doing or shouldn't do that I am doing that I'm not obeying? And our comfort and our help is Jesus obeyed God perfectly. He's done it. He's gone ahead of us, prepared the way to save us from all of our disobedience. But with this text, I pray the Spirit will search our hearts and cause us to see where am I not obeying where God's word has been plain to me. Let's pray. Father, we keep realizing this again and again as we are searched hard by Paul's writing we need Jesus so desperately. We need the searching work of your Holy Spirit. We don't want to be acting like if we're in Christ, we're, going to, we're in danger of being condemned. But we also don't want to be presumptuous that we're in Christ if we're not. And we, we do want to be a people who reflect your goodness and your glory through obedience to your word. And we don't want to fall into the so easy to do, Father, in our Christian culture in this day and age in our times. We, we are so, we have access to sermons online and church services and going to different churches and hearing Bible studies and Bible study tools and study Bibles and books about the Bible and books about di different spiritual subjects and small groups. And we, we are so privileged. But if we're not responding to your word, we need to repent and we need to see it. And so help us, Father, together, to do that together, help us to see, help one another with our blind spots and, and as a people be um, 
putting into action what your word says. By your grace, in Christ's name, amen.